Welcome to Places, everyone. I'm Lonnie Firestone. This is the second of two episodes focusing on August Wilson's play Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and its recent film adaptation on Netflix. Today's interview is with actor Michael Potts, who starred in the Netflix film as Slow Drag, the bass player in Ma Rainey's blues band. When I watched Michael Potts as Slow Drag, I saw something recognizable. The way his character can convey so much with a glance or a knowing look. It's the tendency to observe rather than jump into action. To see a situation from an intellectual distance. I went back to re-watch three roles from his TV work, all HBO series. True Detective, Show Me a Hero, and The Wire, in which he played the notable character Brother Mazone. The art of observation is apparent in each of these characters. As Michael says in the interview, it's part of my natural inclination as a person, as Michael, to observe everything. I'm very aware of where I am in situations. I'm always checking the temperature of the room, which my actor training simply reinforced. Here is my interview with Michael Potts. First, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. Talk with you. Uh, Ma Rainey really was probably the film that I, I really loved the most this year and probably impacted me the most having already loved the play, but mm-hmm. not knowing the potential it would have in a cinematic version mm-hmm. and seeing it just burst open with creative opportunities through George C. Wolfe's vision. I wanted to know your experience from the inside out of that world, specifically finding your the rhythms of August Wilson's language in the cinematic realm, and also moving through a film set that felt and looked like the 1920s. Uh, well, to the first part of it, uh, um, fortunately for us, we, we had a, a, a two-week period of rehearsal before we even began principal photography. It was what George had asked for. And we began because every, nearly everyone involved in it is uh, our background is in theater. And certainly George, uh, multi-award winning uh, director and producer. And so we had two weeks and we very much rehearsed it like a play. We began with the table read as all film and television thing that, and theater work is begun. And every day we came in for those two weeks, we read it at the table. We discussed uh, each scene individually. We, George peppered us with, with questions about uh, who we were and what our relationships were to one another what particular lines meant to us, what are we, what our objectives are in, in, in the particular scene. And then he just let us get up on our feet and play with it. The set was pretty much mapped on the floor, very much in the same way if you're doing a play mm. where it's taped out on the floor. So we had a sense of what the space would be or the amount of space we would actually be playing in. Um, so in that sense, it felt very familiar the 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 whole cinematic thing the cameras and things came much later but we had a foundation of the storytelling before we got in front of the cameras 
And as far as being in the space of night, I mean, it was extraordinary what Mark Ripker did and his team. Uh, just the authenticity of everything that was there. It, it was kind of amazing. Uh, and the way the set was constructed sort of in a modular way, so if walls need to, needed to be pulled out for to get a particular camera angle, it could be done. Uh, part of the magic of, of, of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as I call Hollywood magic, people have no clue <laughs> how some of these scenes get shot and the things that needed to to be done in order 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 to make it work but it was it 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 helped us all of this helps feed a sense give us a sense of place where we're playing and and we're allowed to step onto this set that it's extraordinary to me that that they were able to make almost three blocks <laughs> in pittsburgh look like chicago in 1927 with such detail it was pretty extraordinary so it sounds like because you rehearsed it almost as though it were going to be a stage production you had that that sort of theater foundation right of the yes. of the narrative itself one yes. thing that i love about ma rainey so much is whenever you have a play that's set in a confined room you know that all the emotions will have nowhere to go but to blow <laughs> so, and then explode. Right. Exactly. And I, I'm I'm interested. Like in theater, you always have the whole shot. Yes. And in in film, of course, George C. Wolf has the ability to come around to your shoulder and then zoom in right. on Levy's shoes and all these things. How did you react to the? pacing of the, the the rhythm of the language knowing there were also these visual takes that would add something extra for the viewer well a great thing about it and and the way george directed it you know first of all he called it the space he, it was like a boxing match was the image he gave us that this is a boxing match and all of us are sparring with one another in this confined space so that gave us a sense of where we were but everything else he made the camera was so unobtrusive. Mm -hmm. In other words, he made everything move around us and basically wanted us to simply focus on the telling of the story and interacting and connecting with one another because he would just have the cameras, he and the DP, and they would move the camera to pick up what they needed. It required us shooting the scene, you know, eight, 10, 12 times. So he could get all of the coverage he wanted to pick up everything he needed from everyone. That's what he would do. But we were simply asked to play the scene, to be in, in present in the moments with one another. I wanna ask you about two scenes that are alluded to in the play, <laughs> but physically shown in the film. Okay. That both involve you, walking on the streets of Chicago. Ah, and yeah. one is in the very beginning when you and your bandmates are getting off the L train right. and you're walking with your instruments to the studio. Mm -hmm. yes. And the second is when you go to get Ma a Coke. Mm -hmm. So we yes. get to see that in the film, whereas they're just assumed in the stage version. We just assume you went to get it. Right, right. Uh, and we get to actually see what it's like to walk into the store 
and you feel that sense of discomfort, it really sits with you. I believe in the play, it actually says the first shop was closed mm -hmm, and you had did. to go to another one. When exactly. And that line is not in the movie, but, no. um, but there's an assumption, well, like, well, are we going to leave here or are we going to go, are we going to get the Coke here? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the movie allows the, the, as I would, as the actor and playing slow drag, since we don't have the line of, we had to go somewhere else. It is the, it, it takes so long to negotiate one, to make the decision if we're actually going to attempt to get these Cokes in this store yeah, with what we're facing. And so slow drag has to make a decision, go back and face Ma, <laughs> what's scary, going back and not having Ma's Cokes or facing this, this, this uh, store full of uh, not very friendly and perhaps hostile white men, which, which one will he pick? And so in the movie, he chose to deal with this, that he and Sylvester will simply deal with this very uncomfortable, very dangerous moment, which is what I think was the point George was trying to make, that the simple act of just buying a Coca-Cola, that there is an existential threat even in that, just to buy uh, two bottles of pop from Ma. And in the very beginning, very much the same thing. This is watching these three Black men run this gauntlet uh, that anything can happen between the time they came down off the train platform and the two blocks they had uh, before getting to the studio, that they aren't safe. Mm -hmm. And to create that sense of tension and anxiety immediately before, because you'll notice they don't even begin any dialogue until they're safely in the alley mm -hmm. at the entrance of the... Um, of recording studio because it simply isn't safe yet to actually exhale. And hopefully, you know, you get to see some of that on, I mean, you know, see that on my face, mm -hmm. the idea, how am I going to, again, it's about navigating how we navigate in a world that's hostile towards us. Mm -hmm. And as you can see from Slow Drag's character, Slow Drag is like, I want to get out of here. <laughs> he doesn't want mm -hmm. to be here. Uh, he wants to get it done. Let's do these five songs and let's get out of here. I mean, because the, the irony is these musicians are coming out of the South where Jim Crow laws are in effect, going right. to the North where Jim Crow laws are not in effect. And yet the discomfort is so palpable and slow drag has that line, like, let's get this recording done and just get out. Right. So Because he was still in danger. It's just a different type. And he, you know, there's, for slow drag, it's the devil you know. He understands uh, the system of oppression in the South and have developed, and he, and he has, as, are, as many Black people had, who didn't make the, the trek North, uh, coping skills, coping mechanisms for living in that particular, and, and slow drag has found a very good way being part of Ma's band, and even Ma. Ma knows she can go back home because she's very successful in the South. That's where her tour began. This is where she has a business out of Georgia. She's more than happy to go back home uh, because that's what made her a star and, and makes her a great deal of money. So, so Slow Drag 
is comfortable going back where he has, they have carved out a life and a sense of safety uh, where they are despite the oppression. Whereas up here, this is completely foreign territory as evidence from the reaction when he walks into the store, he's not welcome. Mm -hmm. So as we were just saying, slow drag really is the most pragmatic. He wants to be the most efficient. I think he's the one who avoids the drama more Absolutely. than any other band member or character, really Absolutely. the whole thing. Um, and he, he has a way to stay out of it. It's like, yep, I'll get you the Coke. No problem. I'll be right back. Let's just get this done. Let's be efficient. At the end, when you, you're the one who did your part right, like Ma praises you for it. So what, what is the role of the actor who has to keep, kind of keep it cool when there's so much <laughs> drama surrounding and you can't, it's like you're playing off of Viola Davis and Chadwick Boseman bringing you so much energy yeah. And you know that your character is not going to come at it with the same amount. Can't. Um, again, that's part of his his coping mechanism. Um, um, his way, everyone deals with trauma in their own way. Uh, um, and, and, and how do people deal with oppression is basically, in a sense, with what August Wilson is writing about throughout his American century cycle. And how do pe some people, how do they survive it? And how do some people not survive it? Slow drag survive, survives it because he's that person in that group who never takes himself too seriously. He's the guy who brings the fun, mm -hmm. who uses humor to try and diffuse tense situations, who lets people, you know, who tries to take the temperature down. Like, you know, don't worry about it, Cutler. Ma will take care of it. What are you stressing about? Um, Levy, stop taking Toledo so seriously, you know? So he finds ways of trying to diffuse the tension and he always has a flask nearby. He always <laughs> has, he always has a little something to keep him even. <laughs> Got it. Sort of his own self-medicating. It seems like it's very, very laid back and it's very cool, but it does take a lot of effort to kind of constantly adjust, to parry. So he has, he's constantly moving and he's constantly listening, engaging the temperature of the room. Because every, when you have those kinds of egos and you have all this testosterone going on, um, it's dangerous and it's explosive and you never get anything done. So there has to be somebody, yeah. someone. Yeah. And I think that's true in a lot of Wilson's plays. Yes, that's that's Troy's friend in fences, you know, like exactly. There's a exactly. lot of that person who is just like de-escalate. Yeah, yeah. Just 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 think for a second. Just hold on. Mm -hmm. Hold on for a minute. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of things that look chill, but take a lot of effort. Talk to me about playing the bass and. Yeah. <laughs> and what. What did you learn about your posture and your hands and your expression in playing blues music? It, how the, for me, for the bass was how that bass became uh, another body. It became, it's, it's, it's curve. It became a female. It became a character to love, to caress, to hold and to cradle. 
and and it's also his livelihood. Uh, it's very special because at that time in the early twenties, there are very few there are very few upright bass in blues. I mean, that was a new thing. The upright bass, you know, was had slowly started coming into New Orleans in place of the tuba, uh, but this was new. That it was a part of a uh, a blues band, so that made him very very unique. And it also gave you another relationship within this room. I and mean, he could, slow drag could get buried in taking care of this other person, <laughs> in a sense, this other object is based, making sure it's, it's and I, you know, and I was taking really good care of it also as an actor because it's not mine. <laughs> it actually belonged, the base you see in the movie, belonged to uh, my base coach, Bob Insko, who coached me while I was in Pittsburgh. And uh, and it was one. It's a, it's it was a very old one that he'd had for a long time, and so it was a cherished piece to him. And he he lent it to me to lent it to the movie so I could play it. So of course, as Michael, I wanted to take great care of it as well. And it just gives you a greatest sense of how these musicians relate to these instruments and how it defines who they are and how they move about the room and move about space and how much space they get to take up mm. and encompass and how it and it also grounds them it's a soothing sort of thing that bass is so soothing it's so cool but it's so soothing something about it to be able to kind of lean onto it or let it lean onto you it is it was another you know uh it was another character for for me certainly for slow drag. Hmm. One of the most um, endearing and really delightful parts of the film that were surprising to me were these little moments of visual connection between bandmates. Mm. And it doesn't say in the script, slow drag uh, makes eyes with um, Toledo at this moment or yeah, like, yeah. Uh, Cutler and slow drag uh, yeah. roll their eyes or, uh, <laughs> you know, nod. There's none of that. Right. Right. Uh, but there's so much in there. And when, when actually when I read Wilson on the page, I think so much of Chekhov actually, because mm -hmm. there's so much happening in between lines and in between oh, yeah. sentences. I know mm -hmm. people always compare Wilson to Shakespeare, but right. I feel like that limits the possibilities of of interesting cross theatrical <laughs> connections. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, what I the reason why I always think of Chekhov is because there's so much that can be in a look or in a moment that might not be there on the page, but it might be there. <laughs> oh, it's there, but very much like Chekhov in the sense there's always an event that happened before the play started that affects everyone within the play. Mm -hmm. is the thing with Chekhov. And it's the same thing with Wilson. All of these men have a deeper connection outside and have a history that preceded this little chunk of their lives you see, this, this one day that you're witnessing who they are. And so a part of, a, part of our job as actors is to bring that life, that same history, into this one day. So you begin to understand that these men have a certain comfort level with each other. They have a familiarity. They have a, you know, a competitiveness with one another. 
they have their different tones, how one speaks to one. You know, we speak to levy differently. Slow drag certainly does. Slow drag tries to, when he speaks to levy, he's trying to get levy to be less uptight, <laughs> less impetuous. And then the way he talks to, to, uh, to Cutler is very different. It's different from the way he speaks to Toledo. So this is because of the history that these all these characters have prior to this one day that you're seeing. And, and that, that takes knowing the play, all of us knew the play, because there's much more in the play than we were able to put into the movie itself. Mm. That tells you more about each of these men and, and their relationships to one another and how long these relationships have occurred. So in between that, we have to put that. And those looks are simply about, certainly that two weeks of rehearsal, that time spent with each other develop this and, and, and us actually, you know, going out and eating and drinking together when we weren't rehearsing or when we weren't on set engendered a great deal of trust mm. so that we were incredibly comfortable with one another. We weren't afraid to try different things because we knew uh, somebody was going to catch it. Right. That the ball wasn't going to drop. The other person is going to catch it. Someone's going to see it. And so it created this almost psychic thing that you knew when someone was, was cutting a look at you. <laughs> you sensed it yeah. when you were cutting a look. Yeah. But I always wonder about the, the order of things. Was it that it's sort of built into the staging or George C. Wolfe notices when the, when the music is sounding amazing and you, you guys are in this, in this, in the zone and yeah. you and you look over and Cutler and you know it's going great. Like, yeah. does George C. Wolf say, "Oh, this is really good. Let me get this." Yeah, yeah. I, he in in the course of shooting and again trying to be uh, unobtrusive, he would if we did it several times. He would focus on on each of us individually just to see, so he could pick up what he needed. And sometimes he would come in and say, "Okay, on this one, let's see more of this." Okay, when Levy does this thing, we want to see more of this. So when, you know, Sylvester is, is stuttering, we want to see more of this or less of this or less of that. Don't do this in that sense. But for a large, for, for yeah, the vast majority of everything was just shooting the takes from different angles focused on different people. And he was able to pick up what he needed and edit it into what you, what you ultimately saw. But it wasn't, he wasn't going, now look over here. I've done those kinds of TV things. I've done one of those where the director say, okay, on this line, look over, or, you know, look over. No, what, mm -hmm. what you saw was, was happening very organically and in the moment. Part of what I love so much about those moments of connection, besides it lent so much to the film, is I recognized something in your acting that was familiar. <laughs> and I started to go back to, some of the TV roles that I, I know you from uh -huh. and roles in particular that I kind of just went back over the past week or so. Uh, they're actually all HBO. Uh, uh -huh. Show Me a Hero, True right. Detective, and of course, yeah. The Wire, Brother Mazone. And I realized these are all roles as different as these characters are, one show to the next where Michael Potts is exemplifying the art of observation. <laughs> Pretty much. That's, do you, do you that's, see, do you see what I'm getting at? 
yes, that kind of because what my character that seems to be my type. <laughs> I get hired to observe. So, but the characters are so different. I mean, like yeah. in Tommy a Hero, you are a really concerned father. Yeah. In The Wire, you are a fearless assassin. These are not similar men. <laughs> but I I noticed like there's this ability that you have, and I'm so curious if this is a natural outgrowth of your acting style, to just take in the situation around you and observe it. And then not rush to make a move, but right. take it in. Because slow it's, drug is the same way. I guess people, yeah. I, uh, you know, you always try to figure out what 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 your type is, what your you know what what are people seeing when they hire you? What is what what is the thread? Um, and 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 I've I've come to understand recently that that's what it is. I think it's 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 probably part of my natural personality, my natural inclinations as, as a person, as Michael, to observe everything. <laughs> I'm very, very aware of where I am in space, oftentimes, or where I am in situations. I'm always checking in with the temperature of a room, the temperature of people that I'm dealing with, uh, which the acting training simply reinforced is what happened. So who I was naturally as a person, observing, quietly, assessing before making a move or saying something, uh, trying to filter things uh, before deciding on a, uh, on a plan of action, that's basically what the technique that I learned in school. <laughs> it really just reinforced that. And it required very active listening. You have to listen actively. You have to pay attention and not just what the words are saying, how they're being said, who's saying them, and trying to sit looking at physicality as well. When people are saying it, what are they doing? Are you really telling the truth? What is it you're really saying? You know, are your words matching your action? is always something that you have to be aware of. And so that requires you really being in tune, being attuned to what's going on with these other people who are doing. And, and that's incredibly important in, in August Wilson, when he has all of these people in a room together. They're, they have to be, because it's music for August Wilson. It's all the blues, all of his plays. And in any great blue music com combo, even a symphony, it requires such keen listening and observation to know where you fit in, when is the right moment um, to sound your note, to play your line, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. So yeah, yeah, that's you got to you you've discovered it. <laughs> you found me out. That's my secret. Well, because so much of of being an experienced actor is that you're in the role when you're not speaking your lines. Right. How do you convey what is brewing when you're playing a character who's observing because he's taking it all in? Maybe he's not sure about the information he's receiving, like the detective in, in True Detective, your character. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or maybe like Brother Mazone, you're observing and taking it all in because you're plotting your move. Right. So those are completely different ways to observe. Yes. I mean, the way I approach it 
if I am authentically listening, if I'm authentically stepping into the reality of my character, that that dictates to me how my character listens and, and therefore responds. So even in True Detective, while we were listening to, you know, Matthew and those long monologues and him going on and on and on, there are parts of me, and I think people, people, some people caught it, there are parts of, of me that, that Gilbo is sitting there going, I don't believe a word of this nonsense. He's just going on and on and on and on and on to avoid telling me or answering the question. He's actually playing me. So the point is that thought process, the thought process is always going on. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about a camera, the camera gets close enough to catch that. Mm -hmm. Theater, you have to indicate it in some way. You have to find some physical way, even without the words of kind of indicating it. You know, the drop of a head or, you know, there is some bigger physical indication of your response to it. But the camera is so good at picking up the slightest thing that you really only need to have the thought. But now I'm not, uh, I don't plan a reaction. I simply, I plan the scene. I work on the scene. I work on what I believe my objective is, the thing that I want and then plan my actions on how I try to get it from the other character, but still remain open to what my fellow actor is doing and letting that affect me because it could change what I, what my, you know, what I pre-planned I did in the room by myself. So now I have to meet what my fellow actor has done and pre-planned and I have to be open to adjusting to what they're doing. So hopefully that you get some, the thing that George says tries to capture your truth so you get to capture the, the character's truth, honestly, in that moment, very authentically in that moment. I mean, it's, you know, that's all. We're, we're, we're being truthful in artificial circumstances. Michael, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you so much for asking. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Places Everyone on iTunes or Spotify. And follow me, Lonnie Firestone, on Instagram. Podcast production and original music by Cody Crabb. Artwork by Jennifer Klockner. See you next time. 